And uh, this morning, we're continuing in our sermon series on the Gospel of Luke. So I ask you now to give your attention to the reading of God's Word. A reading from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 20. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the Gospel, the chief priests and scribes with the elders came up to him and said, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who is it that gave you this authority? He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went to another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him. At that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a moment to pray together. Our Father and our God, we ask that this morning you would send your spirit here, your spirit to soften our hearts and give us ears to hear and eyes to perceive, because these words are hard. It's not easy for us to hear. And we ask that we would have such an encounter with you that our lives would be transformed, that we would understand your love, your grace, and your mercy to us, expressed through your Son, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. You know, we've been studying the Gospel of Luke now for about a year, and today we transition to a major milestone in the story, because at the end of Luke 19, Jesus finally entered Jerusalem with the triumphant entry. And we saw this back in the spring when we preached on this passage on Palm Sunday. But what's interesting about what happens right after his entrance into Jerusalem, he heads straight for the temple. And when he sees all the people selling in the temple, we're told in verse 46 of Luke 19, he drives them out saying, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. You know, the temple is a place to meet God, a place of prayer, a place where 
you were to have your life transformed and to understand that the God who created you is the one who wants to redeem you and have a relationship with you. And Jesus comes in and says, this, what is taking place here, is not what God has intended. It's been corrupted. And after he clears the temple, he begins to teach daily there in the temple. And the thing we have to understand about what's happening here is this is not a little microaggression, you know, from Jesus. This is a full-on confrontation. We often like to think of Jesus just as this tender, compassionate, wise, and gentle person. You know, the one who welcomes children and eats with sinners. And all those things we know are absolutely true. But the thing we've seen throughout the Gospel of Luke and the past few chapters in particular, the real Jesus is not less than any of those things, but he is also much more than that. He doesn't shy away from confrontation. And many found him offensive. And his message remains offensive. And when he had done all these things, I mean, can you imagine all the religious leaders, the elders, the chief priests, the scribes? So oftentimes, these are the leaders of the temple life. They come to him and they say, who do you think you are? You know? Do you feel the anger and hatred they have toward Jesus in these words? I mean, they are absolutely infuriated. And they come after him in this chapter from every conceivable anger, seeking to discredit him and destroy him. And the whole chapter is actually about all of these conflicts that are coming up. And in today's passage, which centers on the question of the authority of Jesus, because if you look at verses 1 and 2... They ask this question, by what authority are you doing these things, Jesus? They're saying, look, you know what? We're, we're the people in charge here. We're the priests, the scribes, the elders. You, Jesus, you don't have any credentials. You don't have a PhD. You're not an expert. Who gave you this authority to do this? You know? They're like, how dare you? And this is the milieu of the rest of the chapter. And we see here Jesus counters this question with, well, how about I ask you guys a question? Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? You know, and his question really narrows down the answer to the question the religious leaders pose as two possibilities. His authority is either divine or it is human, one or the other. And then they, the religious leaders, talk amongst themselves and they said, you know what? We know that everyone thinks John was a great prophet, a person who called people to repentance and baptism, the one who prepared the way for the coming of the Messiah. And he said, this is Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. They also understood something. John's authority and Jesus' authority are tied together. So if they say John's ministry was from God, they have to admit Jesus' authority comes from God. But if they say, well, we don't believe his ministry, John's ministry was from God, they would be seen as blasphemers. So they said, well, you know what? We don't really know. Then Jesus kicks this thing up another notch. He wasn't satisfied with winning the argument there because he had to make a really important point. And we come to what I want to spend the bulk of our time on this morning. 
the final parable Jesus tells in the Gospel of Luke in which he challenges the religious leaders and calls them to account. And my friends, this is a disturbing parable. I mean, it is violent, it's dark, it's deeply unsettling, and yet there is a word of great hope here. It has a lot of implications for us today. I mean, when I got assigned this passage, I was thinking, my goodness, how am I going to preach this? And I've been like looking for resources, and this is a hard one. It's really hard to hear. And, but I really pray that God speaks to us through this parable because it's not only darkness, it's not only judgment, but there is such hope here, and we just need to sit with it and just listen. Because there are three key relationships we have to understand in this story that Jesus tells. There's a relationship between the tenant and the owner, a relationship between the tenant and these messengers, and the relationship between the tenant and this son. So I want to look at those three relationships and figure out what is it that we're supposed to learn from this and how is this relevant to us today. Because what is the relationship of this tenant to the owner of the vineyard? You know, we're told in verse 9 there was a landowner. This guy, he invested a lot of money and bought a plot of land and planted a vineyard. And we know all about this here because it's like some guy bought a plot of land in Sonoma and Napa. You buy prime land, you plant a vineyard of different types of grapes, hoping all this work and investment is going to lead to what? a prophet, a great harvest. This landowner goes away on a long journey and he hires people, tenants, to cultivate the vineyard. In return, they pay the landowner a share of the crop. It's kind of paying rent, right? This is a business arrangement. I'll let you cultivate my vineyard and you pay me a percentage of the crop and you keep the rest. This owner has taken all the risks. He's made the investment. And these people are there to cultivate it, take care of it on behalf of the owner. And the way you're to do this is they have to follow the owner's plan, his way, and do it in a way that it is fruitful for his profit. And they have to stay the course of his business plan because you don't rent out this land and let the tenant farmers decide, you know what, I'm not into grace. I'm going to do olives. I'm going to do almonds. I'm going to do dates. No, they're supposed to have a vineyard, you know? It takes usually, from what I understand, at least five years for a vineyard to produce any grapes. So they have to do what the owner has said, I want done. They must follow his way. You don't get to be creative here, you know? Um, that's not how this works. He took all the risks. He, took the, he invested the whole thing. He is the owner, and they have to follow his way. Now, the audience in Jesus' day would know all about these things because this was a common practice. But it was also something about who they were as the people of God because the vineyard, they understood this was a common metaphor in the Old Testament for the people of God. Go to Isaiah 5, read it. I'm not going to read it to you because we don't have a whole lot of time. And it talks about the people of God being described as a vineyard. And this is what the prophets were to call Israel, God's vineyard. God has given many things to Israel. He had given them their homeland, the law, the temple. And the religious leaders were meant to be tenants to care for the people. And it was their job to govern, to care for 
not lead by their wisdom or for their prophets, but to lead them to love God and to understand God's plan for them. And this parable is aimed at these folks here. But what do we see the tenants do in this story? They begin to act like what? Tenants? No, they begin to act like owners. They're not going to listen to the messengers. They're not going to follow the way and the instructions of the owner. They get greedy and they refuse to give the owner his due profits and rent. This is what this story is about. Think, think about what's going on. These religious leaders, Jesus is saying, are failing to listen to God's word. And they were leading the nation in a way that was, it was only for their glory and their profit. And yes, this is a parable about them, but it also has something for us to consider this morning. Think about what this means for us. The broader point is this. We should begin to look at our lives in this way. That our gifts, our talents, our creativity, our education, our privilege, all of these things that are ours, in one sense, we are called to be tenants of these things. We see these things as what? Not as owners, but things that God has entrusted to us for his purposes. And we often look at our lives thinking, The point we have all of this is somehow for our own glory, for our enjoyment. And God is saying, no, your life is tied into the purposes for which I have put you here. You have received these gifts, your abilities. All of these things are to be used in service of love of neighbor and also for the glory of God. We're not meant to do whatever we want to do with it. We have influences. We have possessions, money. We're not called to use these things any way we want. And I think that's a hard message for us to hear because we don't like to be told what to do. That's just, I don't know about you, but that's just how I am, you know? I'm always that way. I don't want to be told what to do. I want to do what I want. And this is the nature of our hearts. You know, here's the phrase that I've heard recently, and I found it very interesting. It's, you should do you. Have, you. have you guys heard this phrase? I'm not picking on this phrase. I'm not saying no one should use it or anything like that. It can actually be a very helpful phrase. But I was thinking about this, and I was thinking, you know, behind it is the idea of here, what is most important in life is I get to do whatever I want. You decide what's important to you. You choose your values. You set the agenda. And somehow, if you don't get to do all of these things, it's somehow harmful or you're going to miss out on what life offers. And for anyone to limit you, including God, I mean, that's not acceptable. That's kind of the idea behind it. You do you. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Use your sexuality the way you want, your money, your talents, your time. You know, if you want to go to church, that's great for you. Don't tell me to do it. You just do you. No one should have authority over you. Act like an owner. And what the Bible says is we are stewards. We are tenants. The scriptures actually begin not with ourselves, but actually with the story of God. Blessed is the man, it says, who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. Psalm 112, verse 1. 
You know, it gives us an alternate vision of a life that is satisfying, that is good, that is beautiful. When you see these words, blessed is the man in the scriptures, you know, literally it is how happy, how happy is the man who fears the Lord. One who understands and sees himself as created in the image of God, who has dignity, worth, value, and you see yourself as a steward in God's economy and in his purposes. You know, that is a very different way to think about life, that somehow you can be deeply, deeply happy with that. In First Chronicles 29, King David has a prayer and he says this, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. And you are exalted to, as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might in your hand. It is to make great and to give strength to all. You know, we all live in the illusion of independence and this idea that we can be self-sufficient where our real condition is actually something utterly different. We don't want to see or believe it. This is really unpalpable for us today as much as it was in Jesus' day. And we often like to think this is somehow a modern philosophical problem, but that is not the case. The Bible keeps saying this is the human condition, you know? This is who we are. This is who we are in our nature. And this is why in Romans 1, it says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. That was written 2,000 years ago. That's not talking about today. Nothing's really changed. This is who we are. We hate the idea of being tenants. We all want to be owners, okay? We all want to be in control. I want to do what I want to do. And this is the first thing you begin to see in this parable. There's an obligation to the owner here, but we don't like it. We kick back against it. And this is the relationship that we see between the tenants and the owners. Let's shift to the second one, the tenants and the messengers. So what does this owner do? He sends messengers. And we see there are three sets of three times he sends messengers. And the tenants do what? They beat the messengers and send them away with absolutely nothing. It's violent. Jesus is telling the religious leaders, God has sent them prophets over the years to tell them they are not tending the vineyard according to his instructions and for his glory. They're doing something different. So he sends messengers, prophets, over the years, and what happens? They're physically attacked, beaten, sometimes even killed. And if you go to the Old Testament and you read the prophets, that actually happened. You know, so... Let's take a look at what this is trying to teach us. And here's the thing that I found really hopeful because in the beginning I'm reading this and I felt so disturbed. It's like, wow, this is so violent. Um, And this is us. And yet, I want you to see something. I think the parable actually teaches us that God in his mercy and patience never gives us just one chance. Did you notice that? Like, How many of you would send your messenger three times? You're like, well, maybe once. All right, I'll send the next guy. All right, two. The third one? This is the patience of God. 
God sends repeated messengers into our lives to tell us what stuff we don't want to hear, stuff that says God loves you. He wants you to turn. He wants you to have a relationship with him. I mean, we can take this as some kind of divine nagging. But could it be that this is God's non-irritable love to us and to his people? Um, I don't know if you've all just switched into football mode, but I've been following baseball because I always do. And, yeah, I know since the Giants lost, it's hard to kind of follow baseball. But, you know... uh, there's this wonderful story back about a decade ago when the Phillies were playing the Nationals during the pennant race. There was this guy, a Phillies fan. His name is Steve Monforto. And he took his three-year-old daughter, Emily, to a baseball game. And they go up in the second deck. They sit out in the outfield. And you know what every baseball fan wants to do when you go to a game? You want to come home with a souvenir. You want a baseball. So here he is in the upper deck. A ball comes just curving up into the upper deck. And, you know, he's the dad with the kid in the arm. And he somehow reaches out and catches the ball. He's on TV. He's so excited. First time ever in his life he gets a ball. He gives it to his daughter to show her. And you know what she does with it? down to the lower deck, and can you hear the whole stadium just groan, right? (laughs) So what's he going to do? He grabs his daughter and he hugs her, you know? I, I don't know. I mean, this is the way God loves us. He continues to say, oh my gosh, you just, uh, I often think we believe God is so irritated with us. He's done with us. He's not going to send us another messenger. That we don't get another chance. That he loves to nag us just to nag us. But that's not what the scriptures are trying to tell you. He's a God who's a father. That when we go astray, his heart breaks. So he sends messenger after messenger after messenger. You know, who are the messengers who have come into your life? Think about that for a second. Some of you have parents who have tried to get you to see the truth. But, it, you know, we all know it's not always easy to receive this from your parents. They can be 100% right, but we dismiss them. Why? Because they're our parents. Need I say more? I mean, I do this. My daughter does this to me, probably. That's just the way it goes. So, We have other messengers oftentimes that come. Sometimes it's ministries, right? It can be this church. Maybe for some of you, it may have been a campus ministry or a Bible study where God's messengers have shown you that you cannot live life apart from him. Okay, and that's an illusion. Others of you have had these amazing friends who have been praying for you, meeting with you, trying to love you and point you to the good news of Jesus And then, as David alluded earlier during the prayer of confession, sometimes the hardships of life become messengers. Disappointments, frustrations, tragedy, and unfulfilled longing that God allows. Life sends you a message. 
telling us you're not in control. You are not in control. You're a tenant. But here's the question. Are you listening to them? Who are the messengers God's sending into your life? Are you resisting? Are you dismissing? Are you listening? And lastly, let's look at this relationship between the tenants and the son. I mean, if, the interesting thing about the messengers that are sent, the violence against them kind of intensifies in verses 10 to 12. The hostilities grow against each subsequent messenger. The vineyard owner has to ask himself, what shall I do? You know? I mean, for me, there's only one answer. You escalate this, okay? You've had three chances to pay your rent, and not only did you refuse, but you attacked my men, right? The response of the owner, though, is what? Compassion. Unconditional love, as one com- commentator describes it, is the response is a costly gamble. He sends his son, the heir, verse 14, which means the heir, this person is the one who's coming and saying, you know what, this is my vineyard. This is my family vineyard. I am the heir. I have all the authority. So he sends his son hoping that they would relent, listen, and abide by their agreement. So if we go back to the question of Jesus' authority that the religious leaders have posed, who do you think you are, Jesus? By what authority are you doing these things? Jesus is saying through this parable, you know what, I'm the owner. My authority comes from my heavenly Father. But my authority is not one that comes to you with this like mandated power to destroy you and to judge you in this moment. But he comes, what? To bring a message that says, please, I'm giving you a chance. Turn. But what do they decide to do? They kill him. Jesus didn't come with force and vengeance. Rather than one time in, his, in the history of the world where God made himself vulnerable, what happened? He was rejected, beaten, tortured, and killed. And this is why it says in John chapter 15, where Jesus is quoting Psalm 69, he says, they hated me without a cause. You know, the people who are hearing this story, they are absolutely shocked. And they ask, you know, what is all this? And then Jesus looks directly at all of them and says, this is what is written. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus is saying this, look, I can be the stone on which you can build your life on. But if you reject me, if you reject me, what do you have? You know, you are bringing judgment on yourself. Like he's saying, read the story. What what is left for you? You are choosing this path here. And he's saying, come, come. I have come not to crush you, but to actually give you life. You know, if you think about the gospel story, this is the amazing thing. Through his weakness, and this is the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of it, the glory of it, the wisdom of it, the death of the Son 
is the way in which God reconciles himself to us. This is how hatred is removed, isn't it? In Ephesians 2, it says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. That's the point. Jesus is, said, Jesus is saying, I have come to do this. This is my authority. I'm not coming here to force you. I'm hoping you see my love for you so that my burden is easy. The yoke is light. That you begin to see that my love for you is what will transform you. Not because I'm forcing you to agree with me or to make you do things or to just nag you. Because when we begin to see that God himself would love us in this way, eh? with his patience and his kindness, he's saying, will you trust me and listen? Because this is the God that I am. I'm not trying to manipulate you or twist you, but I want you to see, I want to give you an alternate vision of what life can be, where all that you have is used in service of me and love of neighbor and you would actually experience the blessed life. And he's saying, will you do that? Will you come along? Will you listen? Because this is what Jesus offers for us, because he is our cornerstone, the one who gave his life for us in order that we would be made whole. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Father and our God, we thank you that this morning that we get to see in the midst of very hard words, we also see your incredible tender heart. You're a God who made himself so vulnerable. You sent your one and only son and exposed him to all sorts of danger and eventually to beating and to death on a cross. And you did this so that we would experience new life in him. And I pray, Lord, that you would allow us to see this clearly so that our hearts would be electrified, so that we would want to obey you and find life in you that it wouldn't feel like something we were forced to do, that something has been taken away from us, that our ag agency has somehow been removed from us. But you're actually telling us, you have our best interests at heart. Help us to trust that. Help us to give our lives to you in this way and to follow you. And we ask that you would bless us in this way. In your son's name, amen.